Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the expected firing of the head of Ukraine's military by President Zelensky, which is likely to further diminish hopes that the US aid package blocked by House Republicans will be unlocked, although the EU did find a way around Hungary's Orban to get $54 billion to Ukraine. Joining us to discuss the battlefield situation in Ukraine and why it has reached a World War I kind of stalemate is Stephen Biddle, a professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University, director of the International Security Policy Concentration, and a senior fellow for defense policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. His books include Military Power, Explaining Victory and Defeat in Modern Battle, and Non-State Warfare, The Military Methods of Guerrillas, Warlords, and Militias. We'll discuss his latest article at Foreign Affairs, How Russia Stopped Ukraine's Momentum. A deep defense is hard to beat. Then we'll look into the Biden administration's sanctioning of four members of Israel's settler movement, a move well short of sanctioning the two rabid right-wing members of Netanyahu's government, Smotrich and Ben Gvir. Joining us is Asha Kaufman, director of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, and a professor of history and peace studies at the University of Notre Dame. Prior to that, he taught at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and from 2000 to 2004, he was a research fellow at the Harry S. Truman Research Institute for the Advancement of Peace, where he headed its Middle East unit. His latest book is Contested Frontiers, Cartography, Sovereignty, and Conflict at the Syria-Lebanon-Israel Tri-Border Region. Then finally, following yesterday's Senate hearing at which big tech leaders were grilled and there was talk of revisiting Section 230 of the Communications Act that immunizes the social media giants from responsibility for what goes out over their platforms, we will speak with Victor Picard, a professor at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, where he co-directs the Media Inequality and Change Center. He's the author of America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism, and The Future of Media Reform. And his latest book is Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. And we will discuss his article at Harvard's Neiman Lab, The News Industry Finally Reckons with the Political Economy of Journalism. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Stephen Biddle, a professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University and a senior fellow for defense policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. His books include Military Power, Explaining Victory and Defeat in Modern Battle, and Non-State Warfare, The Military Methods of Guerrillas, Warlords, and Militias. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, How Russia Stopped Ukraine's Momentum. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Biddle. Thanks for having me. So do you think that this this rift between President Zelensky of Ukraine and the head of the military, Zeluzny, it's about to, I think the hammer's about to drop, isn't it? Well, so people seem to say. Uh, We'll know for sure if and when it happens, but there's apparently been growing tension between the two men, um, and there's some expectation that it's going to lead to uh, Zeluzny getting fired. But Zeluzny is is the second most popular politician, not that he's a politician. So do you think Zelensky will pay a political price? Well, that's a big part of this whole calculation. Uh, those who are expecting Zeluzhny to get fired are in part doing it because they say that Zelensky fears Zeluzhny as a potential future political opponent. 
and sees Zeluzhny as politically ambitious. Um, now, if that's so, then the, the question of the Ukrainian domestic politics of Zeluzhny is kind of at the heart of the whole dispute. Um, Zelensky presumably uh, is on top of such calculations. Uh, and if Zeluzhny gets fired, there's some reason to believe that Zelensky has calculated that this is in Zelensky's net political interest. But my understanding, though, is that obviously when Zeluzny uh, did the interview in The Economist, that upset Zelensky. But it seemed to be an honest appraisal of what was is happening, which is that there's a World War One kind of stalemate along this, what is it, 800-kilometer border? I'm not sure exactly how long it is, but it's a pretty long front. And it seems, at least to me, that what Zeluzny is responding to is the, the fact that so many young men and middle-aged men, for that matter, are dying, and this country only has a quarter of the population that Russia has, and that he just can't abide this continued slaughter that could go on indefinitely because Putin wants to drag this thing out as long as he can. Yeah, I don't think the solution is advocating for some kind of compromise settlement to end the war and stop the slaughter. I I think the Zeluzhny's assessment of the situation and the prognosis is different than Zelensky's. Too many Z's, very hard to keep straight, right? But um, the the underlying issue is largely a function of the jobs these two men occupy and the different responsibilities of those jobs. Zeluzhny is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. His job is direct those armed forces in a militarily efficient way, understand the military prognosis, his, his whole portfolio is essentially military. Zelensky, as the head of state, has overlapping but, but distinguishable responsibilities from it. Zelensky has to lead the nation politically and is responsible for maintaining a constituency in the nation for continuing the war, which is not Zeluzhny's job. Right? Zeluzhny's job is command the forces. Zelensky's job is command the people. And what has tended to happen, certainly over the last year, has been that uh, Zeluzhny's view of the technical military prognosis is increasingly pessimistic. Not that Ukraine is going to lose in the short term, but that the, the war is looking like an attritional, stalemated war position. Zelensky's view is that if that position becomes widely held within Ukraine, the result will be the population will become defeatist, support for the war effort will wane, and Ukraine's ability to continue to hold the line in such a stalemate will uh, will diminish. So Zelensky has typically wanted to defend politically salient symbolic locations, like, for example, the city of Bakhmut, uh, long after many military uh, figures have thought that it was no longer militarily advantageous to do so. Zelensky presumably has that position because he thinks it's important to Ukrainian civilian morale. Zeluzhny tends to oppose those positions because he thinks it's disadvantageous to maintaining uh, the needed military manpower and the needed combat fighting capability. And so the two have kind of systematically different preferences on things like that, leading to tension and conflict that derive from their different responsibilities, both of which are necessary and important. If Ukraine is going to come out of this successfully, it needs the political will to sustain the fight, and it needs the military technical skill to do it efficiently. It needs both of these things. Right, but there's always been this asymmetry, hasn't there, Stephen, in this, in as much as Russia is free to destroy Ukraine and its infrastructure and strike at any target anywhere inside Ukraine, whereas Ukraine is restrained largely by the U.S. and NATO from any deep attacks into Russia. And I guess the other factor is that Russia has a manpower advantage and Ukraine figures the only way to level the playing field with the Russian manpower advantage is with better weapons, right? And we have always set these red lines. You can't have this missile. You can't have this tank. You can't have the F-16s, etc. And eventually then, we months later, we decide we can send them the weapons, by which time 
the Russians have built up formidable defences, which you have written about in your article of Foreign Affairs, how Russia stopped Ukraine's momentum. A deep defence is hard to beat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the West in general, and the US in particular, have said the Ukrainians cannot use US-provided weapons to strike targets deep in metropolitan Russia. We have not said Ukraine can't do it on its own. And Ukraine has been striking targets as far away as Moscow, uh, but they do it with things that they've manufactured themselves. Um, So we've constrained their ability to strike deep, but we haven't completely eliminated it, and they do occasionally carry out such attacks. They don't do so in the kind of volume that's likely to change Putin's willingness to continue the war. And, And it's not clear that they could do that even if we allowed them to use U.S. equipment to do it. I mean, Russia has been engaged in a massive strategic bombing campaign against Ukrainian civilian targets for over a year now, and it hasn't broken the Ukrainians' will to fight. So it's not clear that the lower scale that Ukraine could possibly carry out for strategic bombing attacks against targets deep in Russia would change Putin's will to continue the fight. Lots of Ukrainians would like to do more of that for you know, understandable reasons. Um, but whether that would actually change the outcome of the war is far from clear. But the weapons that uh, have been the most effective uh, have been the HIMARS missiles and the ATACMs, but then the Russians have found ways to get around or to manipulate the GPS so that they don't strike their targets. But meanwhile, my understanding is I spoke to you the other day with Nina Khrushcheva, the, the great-granddaughter of, of Khrushchev, who spent the last six months in Russia. And she said the, the country is being transformed not just into a police state but into a military-industrial state. So would you agree with that analysis? Uh, I would. Um, the Russian economy has proved to be a lot more resilient than I think most Westerners expected it to be. There was a general belief that the unprecedented sanctions campaign that we put together against Russia would undermine their ability to continue the war, whether it undermined their will to do so or not. And the the Russian economy has outperformed expectations by quite a bit. Now, whether they can continue to do that indefinitely is another matter. Uh, As economists are fond of saying, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So sooner or later, the increasing diversion of productive capacity in the Russian economy away from consumer goods and the civilian quality of life and into the conduct of a war effort is going to hit the average Russian. Uh, It's taking a lot longer than anyone expected it to, uh, in part because, as you point out, they've reconfigured their economy to orient it towards war production. you can only reorient so much so long, though. Sooner or later, there's going to be an effect. Whether that effect will be big enough to persuade Putin to accept a compromise settlement is another matter. His political interests are uh, to keep the war going and uh, avoid anything that anyone would describe as a defeat at almost all costs. But, but sooner or later, when you may turn yourself into a war economy... it's going to bite the quality of life of the civilians who are living in that war economy. But in terms of this, you know, both the wish for some kind of miracle weapon or the hope that there would be a breakthrough haven't happened and haven't materialized. And as your article, Foreign Affairs, points out that Germany conquered France in a month, Israel defeated Egypt in six days, and the United States reconquered Kuwait in 100 hours. But that is not happening in Ukraine. That's right. And historically, to get those kind of quick, decisive breakthroughs that produce short wars requires permissive preconditions that you you can't just create by fiat at your own choice. Right. So the the German invasion of France that knocked France out of the war in a month was enabled by radically shallow, forward, ill-prepared French defenses. The Israeli success over the Egyptians in 1967 was enabled by shallow, ill-prepared, poorly motivated defenses on the part of Egypt. The American invasion of 
uh, reconquest of Kuwait in 1991 similarly was enabled by poor Iraqi performance. When offensives don't strike these kinds of permissive defensive targets that have made mistakes or have behaved in ways that enable quick breakthrough, quick breakthrough is radically harder. And in fact, there's, there's very little empirical record of successful quick decisive breakthrough of deep, well-prepared defenses garrisoned by defenders who fight when attacked and who have adequate logistical support. And that's pretty much what Russia has now in Ukraine. That's not what they had in 2022. The Ukrainian counteroffensive at Kyiv, the Ukrainian counteroffensive at uh, Kharkiv, and the Ukrainian counteroffensive at Kherson, all were successful in part because they were striking either shallow, overextended Russian defenses, or as at Kherson, Russian defenses that were in a logistically unsustainable position on the wrong side of the Dnipro River, where they could easily be cut off from supply. Those enabling conditions that existed for Ukrainian offenses in 22 no longer exist now in 2024 and didn't exist in the summer of 2023 when the Ukrainians attempted their summer counteroffensive. So in terms of Ukraine's dependence upon NATO and the United States, it's got to be pretty grim for Zelensky and Zeluzny at the moment. I mean, the EU managed to work around uh, Hungary's dictator Orban, who's clearly carrying Putin's water, who tried to block $52 billion of euros in, in aid. They found a workaround for that. But there's a complete stalemate in the U.S. Congress, right, in terms of tying aid to uh, Ukraine with the border, which is clearly something that Trump is manipulating behind the scenes through the new Speaker of the House. They, just, they simply don't want to give Biden any kind of victory, uh, even though it's in the national interest to do so. So it looks as if in order to prevent Biden from getting a win, Ukraine loses and Putin wins. Yeah, I mean, the Ukrainians are facing a number of headwinds right now, some of them on the battlefield in Ukraine, but some of the most important ones in Washington. Um, the prognosis for continued U.S. military assistance, which is you know, pivotally important for Ukraine's ability to continue to resist effectively, uh, is at the moment pretty cloudy. The support for Ukraine among the Republican Party has been uh, subsiding consistently and progressively for over a year now. Uh, and this is aided and abetted by Donald Trump's decision that it's in his partisan political advantage to oppose the Western support for Ukraine. Um, as a general rule, it's not a bad predictor of future policy positions of the Republican Party to look at what Donald Trump prefers at time T and then project that to what the rest of the Republican Party is going to prefer at time T plus some number of months. Um, so the the Trumpier part of the Republican Party has been uh, forcefully opposed to Ukraine aid for quite some time. What's been happening is that more and more of the rest of the Republican Party is sliding that way. And given the degree of kind of veto power effectively that the populist pro-Trump Freedom Caucus subset of the Republican Party, especially in the House of Representatives, has had over behavior of the House of Representatives and by extension the entire U.S. government, uh, it, it's going to require some either electoral change in the fall or some pretty inspired political horse trading uh, to get more aid for Ukraine out of uh, the U.S. House of Representatives anytime soon. But we don't know, do we, Stephen, what motivates Trump in, in his decision to essentially support Russia over Ukraine, which goes against all logic in terms of defending Europe and, by extension, defending the United States and defending the rule of law and democracy, etc., etc. Now, you can certainly make the case, and I don't know whether or not, and I think anybody knows exactly what 
the nature of Trump's relationship with Putin. It's very murky and and rather troubling, to say the least. But it also seems pretty clear that if Trump were to be re-elected, he might well pull the United States out of NATO. So I don't think the Biden administration have done much of a job in in selling the fact that all of this money that's been spent, and obviously some of it's been wasted, and some of the stuff that we sent them hasn't been particularly good weapons, but nevertheless, it seems that the White House could have at least pointed out that almost all of the money that we sent to Ukraine actually is spent here in the United States. So why, have they, why haven't they done that? Well, I mean, I've been consistently supportive of USAID to Ukraine and remain so. Uh, for all sorts of reasons, including partly the the fact that, as you point out, much of that money is actually spent in the United States. There's also simply the point that um, Russia is a potential future competitor to the United States, and aid to Ukraine is a pretty inexpensive way to take Russian military capability you know, off the table, um, not to mention the whole geopolitics of U.S. interests and the stability of Europe and then the discouraging of future military adventures and aggression on the continent, which I think all would become more likely in the event that Ukraine gets conquered. So I think there there are lots of good, in my view, lots of good reasons on the objective merits to favor U.S. assistance for Ukraine, which at its most wildly ambitious maximum is still a tiny fraction of what the United States spends on defense in any given year. Um, the Biden administration has not made this argument as effectively as I would like, that said, it, it's not that hard to figure out why Republicans increasingly oppose it. Now, to to understand why Donald Trump in particular does, of course, you you would need a Vulcan mind meld right, to understand what's going on under all the orange hair and all that. Uh, short of a Vulcan mind meld, however, there are features of the Ukraine war that lend themselves to the usual populist Republican storyline about the world in general and the problem of globalist elites. So support for foreign wars has traditionally been framed by populist Republicans as the sort of thing that an out-of-touch, privileged globalist elite foists on poor average working Americans because it's in their uh, economic and megalomaniacal interests, uh, support for a distant foreign war in a place that lots of uh, individuals within the Republican base probably couldn't find on a map how many Americans you know, knew where Ukraine was before this war started. Um, it, it's not hard for someone with a populist bent to frame this war as something that's not in the broad American interest, it's in the narrow interest of elites, and it's European, and there's lots of disaffection with a a particular conception of effete cosmopolitan Europeans on the part of American progressives. There's been increasing interest among American progressives in isolationist positions in which they oppose all U.S. engagement in the world. And last but not least, it's a position that the Biden administration has adopted, which ipso facto makes it wrong in the view of most Republicans. If Joe Biden came out in favor of apple pie, there would be op-eds appearing in Republican outlets about why apple pie is a terrible thing and tastes bad and makes you fat and we should all hate it. So the the idea that the Republican Party would follow Trump in his opposition to the war in Ukraine is in an important sense overdetermined. There are all sorts of reasons, I think, that predispose that wing of the Republican Party to oppose this. The traditional internationalist pro-military wing of the Republican Party feels differently. And they predominated early on in this debate. But as has been the case on so many issues since 2016, the traditional paleoconservative wing of the Republican Party withers when brought under attack by the new progressive Trumpy wing of the Republican Party. That's what's been happening with respect to Ukraine for the last year. At the moment, the the Republican 
pro-defense, pro-internationalism holdout wing is keeping this a contest in terms of the, the U.S. Congress. The Senate, where that part of the Republican Party is strongest, is making a reasonable attempt to try and keep USA alive. But again, if I were a betting man, uh, my money would not be on uh, traditional Republican conservatives in the Senate. My, my guess is the Republican Party as a whole is probably going to look a lot more like Trump on Ukraine in six months sure. than it does now. Well, we've run out of time, Stephen, but obviously we have a counter-majoritarian tyranny of the minority. If you had a majority vote uh, with the the Republicans uh, that support Ukraine and the Democrats who support Ukraine, it, it would be a no contest. But that's not mm-hmm. how our system works. Not right now. That's for sure. So thank you so much. I appreciate your joining us here today. Uh, My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Biddle, who's a professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University and director of the International Security Policy Concentration and a senior fellow for defense policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. His books include Military Power Explaining Victory and Defeat in Modern Battle and Non-State Warfare, The Military Methods of Guerrillas, Warlords and Militias. And his latest article in Foreign Affairs is How Russia Stopped Ukraine's Momentum, A Deep Defense is Hard to Beat. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the Biden administration's sanctioning of four members of Israel's settler movement, a move well short of sanctioning the two rabid right-wing members of Netanyahu's government, Smotrich and Ben Gavir. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Asha Kaufman, who's director of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and a professor of history and peace studies at the University of Notre Dame. Prior to that, he taught at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and from 2000 to 2004, he was a research fellow at the Harry S. Truman Research Institute for the Advancement of Peace and headed its Middle East unit. His latest book is Contested Frontiers, Cartography, Sovereignty, and Conflict in the Syria-Lebanon-Israel Tri-Border Region. Welcome to Background Briefing, Asha Kaufman. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Asha. And today, uh, the Biden administration sanctioned four Israeli settlers, David Chai Chazdai, Ainan Tanjil, and Yinon Levy, accused of assaulting and intimidating Palestinians on the West Bank. They also targeted Shalom Zikerman, uh, accused of assaulting Israeli activists. But apparently they had considered sanctioning the two government ministers, Smotrich and Ben Gavir, but decided against that. Is there any way that this is really going to make an impact? I mean, it seems a little strange to be sanctioning four Israelis for violence on the West Bank when there's a free-for-all in terms of violence in Gaza. Yeah, yeah, this is this is simply probably just a, a symbolic gesture that has to deal to do more with the uh, Biden's uh, domestic uh, politics and American domestic, uh, I mean, Biden's domestic uh, concerns and American uh, politics. And it will not, I mean, I, I don't see any, any really, uh, Way that that would change the you know the broader landscape uh, in uh, in Israel proper, but this is uh, this is new. This is unheard of. So, from a point of view of precedent, then we are facing something new. And uh, who knows? Maybe that might lead to additional uh, steps that uh, this administration uh, may take. Well, it's obvious that Biden and Netanyahu have a strained relationship, to say the least, and it's obviously become even more strained because of this war in Gaza following the hideous Hamas attack on October the 7th. 
But Biden's executive order coincides with Biden's visit today, Thursday, to Michigan, which is an important swing state and the home of a large Arab American population that are very, very disenchanted with Biden's handling of the war in Gaza. So I guess when you talk about domestic political considerations, that's front and center, isn't it? Yes, yes, uh, for sure. I mean, as as we all know, American presidential elections will be determined uh, in very few handful of uh, states. Michigan is one, and there is a strong uh, American-Arab community in uh, Michigan, the majority of uh, whom voted for Biden in uh, 2020. And the big question is, uh, would they vote for him again in 2024? So it's a big uh, question for him and uh, really the, uh, detrimental for American uh, uh, political landscape in 2024 and the elections, the presidential elections. So we have, you know, we, we have long uh, thought that uh, American policy towards uh, Israel and Palestine is not really foreign policy, it's domestic policy. And we have another example how this is played out. Uh, Right. Well, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, of course, he said in response to the sanctions that the overwhelming majority of West Bank settlers are law-abiding citizens and, quote, Israel acts against all Israelis who break the law everywhere. Therefore, exceptional measures are unnecessary. But that's not true. I mean, isn't it true that there's almost a free, you know, a license to harass, attack, uh, yeah. I mean, injure, I, and even even kill the Palestinians in, on mean, the I, West Bank. Yeah, I mean, I should start by saying that uh, Netanyahu lost any credibility. <laughs> so anything that he says, you should take with a grain of salt. That's first. Second is, uh, it is true that the vast majority of settlers in the West Bank are not engaged in the direct violence against the Palestinians. There is a minority of among them who are engaged in really direct violence, who are engaged in uh, you know different forms of ethnic uh, cleansing. Uh, but the majority are silent. They are facilitating it. They are enabling it through the the, the settlements and so on and so uh, forth. And uh, this minority the, that are doing this uh, these forms of uh, violence that are physically attacking uh, Palestinians uh, are in fact uh, impacting the the dynamics in uh, the West Bank uh, between Jewish settlers and Palestinians more than the majority of uh, the settlers. I mean, in general, the settlers are really diverse. It is oftentimes missed in, uh, in you know, international uh, media reporting on them, but they are a very diverse group of people. And what we hear about is mostly those uh, violent uh, minority who are shaping uh, much of the dynamics because they are the ones that are really um, engaged in uh, in horrible acts uh, against the Palestinians, including acts of uh, pogroms, direct pogroms uh, that uh, you know these four were actually involved in. Uh, about a year ago in the village of uh, Hawara. But these settlements, though, are considered illegal by the international community and even the United States, aren't they? I mean, so all settlers are breaking the law, aren't they? Yes, so I think when Netanyahu was referring to the law, he was referring to the Israeli law and not to international law. Of course, according to international law, all settlements are illegal. Uh, But the Israeli uh, legal system has... uh, you know, legalized most settlements, has made them uh, legal. So Netanyahu is saying that all these settlements, most settlers are law-abiding uh, uh, citizens. There is, a, you know, there is an irony in the Israeli legal system because even the Supreme Court that uh, is so revered by Israeli progressive circles, uh, by anti-Netanyahu uh, uh, you know, social movements that geared up uh, last year. Even the Supreme Court has two of its members, uh, settlers. So the highest court in Israel includes uh, settlers who, according to international law, are 
should not be there, should not be residing in these uh, uh, settlements. Right. So it is really convoluted from a legal perspective where the international law is in conflict with the Israeli uh, law with regards to uh, settlements. But it's pretty clear that the Israeli military and the police protect settlers and often yes. stand by while they beat yes. up or even kill Palestinians on the West Bank. In fact, prior to the October 7th attack, Netanyahu and particularly Ben Gavir and Smotrich being the ministers in charge, they moved units of the Israeli military from the Gaza border into the West Bank to protect settlers who were, who were marching on Jacob's tomb. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is another layer of uh, complexity to, to the story of uh, violence between Israeli Jews and Palestinians in the West Bank. The fact that uh, army units are, in fact, uh, uh, defending uh, violent uh, settlers. And it's even more than that, uh, as you may know. I mean, uh, Israeli military is changing uh, demographically. More and more uh, combat soldiers come from uh, settler circles. So they are, the settlers are also disproportionately represented in uh, combat units in uh, the military. And in, since uh, the war in Gaza began, settler civilians who function as uh, civil guards of the settlements have been empowered by the military to operate almost as a, you know, in a military capacity. So they have used that kind of uh, empowerment to increase their violence against the uh, Palestinians. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm pointing again that this, this is not the majority of the settlers, but it is this minority that is uh, setting the, 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 the agenda that is shaping how the settlement and uh, how the the, the, the the dynamics of violence uh, unfolds between settlers and uh, and Palestinian residents of West, the West Bank. But in terms of the statement from Netanyahu's office that Israel acts against all Israelis who break the law everywhere, therefore exceptional measures are not necessary. Just last month, this Israeli settlers and an off-duty police officer killed a shot dead a 17-year-old Palestinian-American. Um, yes. in the West Bank. So none of this is credible in terms of uh, what's going on. I mean, yeah, uh, I mean, for sure, if you, you look at the, uh, in general, Israeli policies towards uh, soldiers who have been engaged in some violent activity against the uh, uh, Palestinians, not just soldiers, but settlers. And in general, there is a very strong uh, record of uh, impunity. You, and the, and the, the Palestinian journalist that was shot by an Israeli sniper, nobody's been held to account for that, have they? Right, with uh, Shirin Abu Akla. Right. That was uh, over a year ago, I believe. Nobody right. was held accountable. And I mean, the, the stories, we know about uh, Shirin Abu Akla because she was known, she was a reporter for Al, Al Jazeera, a known uh, a person. But there are dozens of similar cases where... Uh, Palestinians are being held, held and uh, it, I don't think it would take much effort to find who is the offender, but uh, Israeli authorities, the legal system, the military are not doing their work in uh, finding the, the offenders and uh, penalizing them. So, Ashokapan, in the last uh, couple of minutes then, obviously the Arab Americans in Michigan, I don't think are going to be particularly impressed with this effort by Biden to appear to be a little more even-handed given his almost unqualified embrace of Netanyahu and his war. I mean, for example, you could sanction the settlers, many of whom are Americans, right? So if you sanction yes. them, you really do. It does hurt because they all have holdings over here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, that could be an interesting legal question uh, that might raise, because if he sanctions American citizens who are also citizens of Israel, what does it mean legally here in the United States? Uh, because the, the four that he sanctioned uh, are not allowed to travel to the United States. But what happens with the... Uh, settlers with the American citizenship and would they can they also they be prevented from entering the United States my guess is that 
Legally, probably they are not. I'm not a legal scholar, but I'm simply guessing that, that that would be a challenge. And there are many settlers who have dual citizenship, uh, American and uh, and Israeli. Right, but if you if you wanted these sanctions to bite and make a point, I would think that's the least you should do, is sanction the American uh, settlers. Yeah, or uh, make, you know, more of a blanket uh, sanction over larger groups of uh, settlers and not just single out one or two, particularly given the fact that the United States itself recognizes that all the settlement project is illegal. So there are many right. places where the, the U.S. administration could uh, operate, you know, a sanction against uh, Israel from this or even, uh, right. you know, highlighting uh, the responsibility of uh, the, the ministers because, I mean, these... Uh, Singling out these four uh, folks is, you know, it's symbolic, but it is the Smotrich, it's, it's the Ben Gvirs, these are the ones, these are the leaders that are inciting, that are mobilizing, that are now calling for establishing settlements in the Gaza Strip. And so long as they are in power in Israel, it will be very difficult to change anything on the ground. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest challenge, I think, that we are facing right now domestically in Israel. The government is a combination of, uh, on the one hand, uh, really inapt, unfit to govern, and on the other hand, is uh, composed of plainly right-wing fascist, racist uh, uh, politicians. Well, Asha Kaplan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I, I thank you for inviting me. And again, I've been speaking with Asha Kaufman, who's director of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and a professor of history and peace studies at the University of Notre Dame. Prior to that, he taught at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and from 2000 to 2004, he was a research fellow at the Harry S. Truman Research Institute for the Advancement of Peace, where he headed its Middle East unit. And his latest book is Contested Frontiers, Cartography, Sovereignty and Conflict at the Syria-Lebanon-Israel Tri-Border Region. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into whether the law that immunizes social media giants from responsibility for what goes out over their platforms will be reformed and how vulture capitalism is killing American journalism. If you walk away, I'll walk away. First tell me which road you will take. I don't want to risk our paths crossing someday. So you walk that way, I'll walk this way And there's kids playing guns in the street And one's pointing his tree branch at me And so I put my hands up, I say enough is enough If you walk away, I'll walk away And he shot me dead Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Victor Picard, who's a professor at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, where he directs the Media Inequality and Change Center. He's the author of America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism and the Future of Media Reform. And his latest book is Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. And he has an article at Harvard's Neiman Lab. The news industry finally reckons with the political economy of journalism. Welcome to Background Briefing, Victor Picard. Thanks for having me back on the show, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Victor. And uh, yesterday there was a Senate hearing at which the tech titans of Silicon Valley were on the were being grilled, and there was a lot of grandstanding, particularly from Senator Lindsey Graham, who said to them, "You got blood on your hands," and your product kills. And, of course, this is the same senator who would not say that, and none of his Republican colleagues would say that about the gun industry, whose product, who produce uh, assault rifles that clearly kill. But that aside, there was some discussion about dealing with Section 230 of the Communications Act that immunizes these Silicon Valley tech titans from any social responsibility in terms of what goes out out over their platform. And Columbia University in October 
estimated that technology giants Google and Meta should pay the news business, news outlets in this country, $14 billion per year in revenues for their search traffic and content, a figure that's uh, also been described as conservative. So let's begin with that. I don't know whether that's doable at all. They certainly weren't talking about it at the hearing yesterday. But what's your take on that? Is there any way for the news industry to get paid properly for its work that's essentially being pirated? That's a great question, Ian. I think that we need to start out by looking at the bigger picture. And as much as Facebook and Google are causing social harms around the world and certainly owe much more than billions of dollars to the news industry, I actually see their role in this crisis as kind of a second-order problem. They're certainly exacerbating it. They're gobbling up the lion's share of digital advertising revenue and siphoning that away from newspaper publishers. But for them to simply throw some money back at the big publishers, many of whom are themselves complicit in the broader journalism crisis, I don't think gets at the core root of the problem. I I would be fine with them paying money into a public media fund that we could then allocate towards smaller, more independent news organizations and the communities that are currently in news deserts. But the way that this, and this, by the way, this is called the Journalism uh, Competition Preservation Act uh, at the federal level. And then there's a similar bill that's being um, discussed in California Um, So I don't think that's going to solve the problem, but certainly, I mean, we need to rein in the platform monopolies one way or the other. So it's it's certainly worth considering, but I don't think that's going to save the journalism that we need in a democratic society. So, Victor, I I started out at the BBC, and the BBC, of course, is financed by the licenses that citizens pay in the UK when they buy radios and TVs. And it's a sort of painless system that has produced a journalistic standard that affects the rest of the press, even though you have Murdoch and all these horrible tabloids in the UK as well. But nevertheless, there's a journalistic standard that's immunized against political pressure, even though it's constantly under attack. Here in the United States, you don't have anything like that. I mean, public broadcasting is is weak and depends upon funding from oil companies, etc. But the only reason that we have any sort of journalistic standard, like the New York Times, for example, is entirely because of the the families that own these papers have some sense of social responsibility. I mean, media owners would prefer to have wall-to-wall advertising and no content because advertising means revenue and content means expense. So right. are we are we in that situation where we really have to rely on the largesse of people like the owner of the Washington Post and the owner of the Los Angeles Times, a couple of billionaires? Right. Well, we've been forced into that position for a number of historical reasons and for the fact, as you note, that we have such a weak public media system, it's really a misnomer even to call it a public system, as it does get a lot of its money from private sources, including including large corporations. But to go to your question, I mean, that's the problem with this so-called benevolent billionaire model for saving journalism. It, first of all, begs the observation that not all billionaires are benevolent. But then we see what happens with the L.A. Times and Washington Post. Just last week, the L.A. Times cut 115 jobs, about 20 percent of its newsroom. Back in December, Washington Post cut about 240 positions, nearly 10 percent of its employees. Now, if even billionaires are suffering sticker shock, we're, we're in big trouble. There really is no commercial future for many kinds of journalism, especially local journalism. And I really think that's how we need to begin Framing the discussion, not hoping that the platforms will throw some money or that you know people will start paying more for news. We really need to unhook journalism from these profit imperatives in the first place. So how is that done? Always easier said than done, but the first thing we need to do is find non-market means of support. And there's two general models for that. There is the non-profit model, um, and we, we are seeing that sector grow 
quite significantly over the last few years. We're seeing some great experiments coming coming out of that. But we also have to be crystal clear that that's not a systemic fix. The other alternative is, as you suggested before, a kind of public, a truly public model where it's not just public in name, but it's actually publicly owned and controlled. That doesn't exist at the moment, but I think that that's going to be our last best hope for providing the kind of journalism that we need. And that's, you know, that's what we have to start pushing towards, put that on a horizon, on our horizon. And it might take decades to get there. I don't know if we have decades to get there, but that's something we need to work towards. Well, the challenge has gotten greater, hasn't it, because of the pernicious influence of social media. Even the, some of the senators, uh, the Republican Senator Kennedy was saying that to, to Zuckerberg that Basically, all all Facebook is 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 a conduit for for snark. This is true, uh, and certainly we see degraded media content not just not just in social media, but throughout our traditional print media, especially cable news media, where there really is no actual journalism being produced whatsoever. Um, so it's a it's a problem, but that doesn't mean there's not demand. I really do think it's a supply side problem, primarily. And that's where we need to focus our attention to make sure that the journalism is being produced. Even today, where people are increasingly getting their news and information from social media outlets, all the original or the majority of the, the original news reporting that's gleaned from those outlets traces back to the suffering newspaper industry. So I really think we need to focus there where there is actual journalism being produced and we need to find ways to rescue those newspapers from the commercial market, which is currently driving them into the ground. But there's a local news desert because of the numbers of local newspapers that are folding, and those that are not, many of them are being bought up by hedge funds, and hedge funds are all about extracting wealth, not creating wealth. Their, their model is vulture capitalism. You're absolutely right, and that's another example of what I would think of as a second-order problem. They are definitely villains, uh, and we need to call them out. They're definitely exacerbating the problem. They're swooping in, buying up distressed papers, immediately selling them off for parts, selling off the real estate, the parking lot, the building, and of course, laying off a bunch of journalists themselves. So they are, they are certainly toxic to this problem, and they're the last ones that see any profit potential in local journalism. There really is no commercial future for the, that kind of journalism, and that's what's creating those news deserts that you mentioned that tens of, a mil, tens of millions of Americans are now living in. We've seen since 2005, nearly two-thirds of our newsroom employees have lost their jobs, and nearly a third of our newspapers have closed. So this is a major, profound, structural problem, and there really is no market solution to this problem. But... Given this is a, probably the most critical election year in recent history, perhaps even going back to the Civil War days, it could not be more dangerous, right, when you've got alternative facts and and deep fakes. I mean, we just had a deep fake the other day in the election in New Hampshire where a facsimile of Biden's voice was used to discourage people from going to the polls. Yeah, that's a huge problem. Into this vacuum where you see newspapers and actual journalists retreating are rushing in all manner of mis- and disinformation, so-called pink slime journalism that really is just propagandistic fake news. And, you know, this is this is just creating a, a, a disaster for our democracy. I mean, I think we do need to be crystal clear about that. This isn't just a journalism crisis or some sort of business tragedy. This is a existential crisis for our democracy. We've got, as you say, an election coming up where arguably fascism is on the ballot. Um, we, we've got we, to make sure we've got some sort of fourth estate, some sort of press system in place. We all learn in school that democracy requires a free and by implication a functional press system, and that is being actively dismantled by the market as we speak. Well, but hasn't Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch already done massive damage to American journalism because they're the first outlets to present propaganda as news 
and they're getting more and more hysterical. <laughs> I don't know whether you're following Hannity now, but he's absolutely in a lather over over uh, Taylor Swift because she's not, you know, she may get young Democrats to vote. Their partisanship is so strident and so pathetic that it's embarrassing. And yet every day, you know, they turn out amazing propaganda that just their business model is to rile up the rubes. That's exactly right. I mean, it's based on whipping up hysteria and scaring their viewers, but it's also highly profitable. And, you know, as much as Fox has caused untold damage to our democratic discourse, I don't really see a regulatory intervention. I'm not against considering regulatory interventions, but I do. I, I really think the most surefire way of combating that kind of misinformation is to create a reliable press system, a media system that's based on informing people and trying to elevate the discourse, and you know, making sure that all communities have a say. Um, and I do think you mentioned the BBC earlier. It's not a perfect model, and my British friends are constantly trying to you know beat out any sort of romanticism I may still have towards the BBC, but I wish we had their problems. You know, I think that's exactly a kind of public system that we need to at least start with in the U.S. and then try to further democratize it. But do you think it's so far gone, uh, Victor, that so much of the American public does not want to be informed and, and that you have reality shopping where Christians get their information from Christian media, liberals from MSNBC, and, you know, right-wingers from Fox and even the more extreme spin-offs like OAN and Newsmax. Yeah, it's terrifying. But first of all, I don't think we can give up on this ideal or we're truly doomed. Um, that we can't, if we can't create a, a more democratic uh, media system, But beyond that, there's a couple of data points that give me at least some hope. One is that even among conservatives in particular who say that they hate the media, when it comes to their local media, they tend to have warm, fuzzy feelings towards those institutions. There actually there is not a huge difference between liberals and conservatives on on that particular question. And even for public media, this is somewhat counterintuitive, but relatively speaking, there's higher levels of trust towards public media institutions as well. So if you add that to the fact that I truly believe that if communities, local communities are involved in their own local media, they will have higher levels of trust. And we could actually bring many of those people back to the, to the reality uh, camp. Um, so I, I'm not ready to give up on, on, on that fight just yet. And of course, the contribution that local media makes is particularly important with local government, with councils and with state governments, because here in Los Angeles, by the way, I think half of the Los Angeles City Council are now either under investigation by the FBI or in jail. And that that all happened because of journalists exposing what what they've been up to. That's right. And in fact, we see these natural experiments play out again and again. We see what happens to local communities when they lose their local newspapers. There's higher levels of corruption. There's lower levels of civic engagement, lower levels of political knowledge. Um, People are less likely to vote. So, you know, it's all intuitive, but the data is in. I mean, we, we know what happens. We know that this is very destructive for our democracy. And so we just don't have a choice. We need... We need to make sure that we build up a, a new press system from the ground up. We can reinvent something. We don't need to just prop up the failing commercial model. We can actually reimagine what journalism could and should be. Well, Victor Picard, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Great talking to you, Ian. Thank you. And again, Victor Picard is a professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, where he co-directs the Media Inequality and Change Center. He's the author of America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism and the Future of Media Reform. And his latest book is Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. And he has an article at Harvard's Neiman Lab, The News Industry Finally Reckons with the Political Economy of Journalism. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. Oh,